but uh, it's getting to the point that we certainly need deliverance down here. And speaking of deliverance, uh, be advised property taxes will be coming up pretty soon. <laughs> and I, I doubt anybody's going to deliver us from the county, so uh, I don't want to get into all that that kind of thing or talk about it more, but uh, about my only forum to get a chance to say, be prepared. Uh, as far as George is concerned, uh, I kind of sent word here and there that we need to be praying ever more fervently in, in his particular case. That uh, infection that he has is still not under control and uh, is life-threatening. He's not in the process at the moment, the doctor said, of dying, but uh, he said it's very grave. Uh, that's, that's a pretty strong word. So it is certainly life-threatening if it isn't brought under control. And uh, now we find that uh, because of Medicare's rules and this and that, they're going to have to move him to another facility, perhaps in Salt Lake or Las Vegas. I've got to talk with the staff along with his daughters that are here today, and and uh, we're going to lobby hard, I think, for Las Vegas since it's half the distance it is to to Salt Lake. And if family want to fly back and forth from Texas, it's uh, closer and cheaper, I think, to fly into Las Vegas generally than it is to Salt Lake. So you might pray about that as well, that uh, something out of our control once in the system, it's you're kind of at their mercy. So keep him very much in mind uh, under these circumstances. Now, in regards to the Feast of Tabernacles, it's drawing ever near. Uh, I just did up yesterday the calendar for 2014, considering the new moons and everything, and they brought it home to me as I'm figuring out which dates are correct, that uh, the feast is almost here uh, for this year. But uh, I wanted to mention that several have asked about uh, camping out over here by the pavilion for the feast, and I think that's a great idea. The pavilion is there to provide some shelter to cook under and so on, and uh, we do have electric and water over there. So... Don't feel left out. Uh, anybody's welcome. Uh, some felt that it would just be more like feel more like the feast if they weren't in their own yard or something and could kind of camp together. So uh, I know quite a few are thinking of doing that, and uh, that is available and may make a real good opportunity. I, I know a lot of us really enjoyed being together camping out last year uh, at the feast and. Uh, we can have somewhat the same atmosphere here. They're even talking about hooking up the shower trailer over there, and, and uh, like we had last year, and maybe a porta potty or two. I, I don't know exactly what will finally be decided among those who want to do it, but uh, we'll provide as much facility as we possibly can and make it as comfortable as possible. So I just wanted to mention that for any that might want to be apprised of it or maybe be involved in it. And I think that's about it for announcements. Let's get back into 1 John 4 today. Uh, I spent quite a little time last week 
because this chapter started out about believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they're of God, and focused a little bit on getting down to the brass tacks of that. How do you know? How do you do that trying? And it has to pass the word of God. That's the primary thing we have to indicate to us if somebody is telling the truth or not, is compare what they have to say with the Bible, because it is the really only and living authority that we have on this earth, and God as a loving Father has provided it for us, so we can check people's beliefs against it. Of course, attitude, when you say try the spirits, attitude has a lot to do with it as well. Is it a carnal, human, selfish spirit, or is it a loving, serving, gentle, kind spirit? So, we have Galatians 5 to tell us the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, so, what are you seeing? Are you seeing the flesh or are you seeing the Spirit? And we went through some of those things there to see what truly is of human flesh and, in comparison, what is of the Spirit. And we have to all realize, of course, that we're in the middle of all that, trying to walk in the Spirit, but being burdened with our human nature, which causes us to walk, want to walk selfishly and self-centeredly and full of pride, ego, and all those things that constitute the flesh. But he makes some statements here that I got into uh, quite a bit last time, and that is that he talks about if you believe that Christ is, came or has come in the flesh, then you were of God. And on the surface, it might look like from that that the Protestants are right. All you have to do is believe on the name, uh, accept Jesus, uh, and accept that he is the Son of God, and that's all there is to it. But John is much deeper than that, and when he makes those statements, you have to not take a half a verse or a verse out of what he's saying and say, all you got to do is believe. Uh, you have to take it in context because he shows in this book what believing entails. If you really believe him, it causes action on your part. You live by a certain standard. It isn't just the name, but it's his whole body of work, his whole life that he lived on this earth, never sinning, never breaking the commandments, and where he is today, still living by the code of conduct that is listed here. In fact, all he did, really, was transfer the way the Father and the Son and the holy angels live into writing for us. We can't see them. We don't observe them day in and day out. So, we don't know by personal experience what they do and how they live. A few people got an inkling of that when Christ was walking the earth. So, we have to have another means of knowing how Christ walked, how he thought, and he inspired the writers of this book to know, and some of those who wrote this book personally observed 
the way he lived and walked and thought. And wrote the Gospels from that, and we can't exclude Paul either, because he spent three and a half years with Christ in the desert, getting the same teachings that the other apostles got. So, there is more to it than immediately meets the eye, and you can't just take one or two statements out without considering everything that Paul is writing. Uh, Verse 6 of 4, We are of God, he that knows God hears us, He that is not of God hears not us. Now, in saying that, John says, I was taught the things directly from Christ. And if you don't hear the doctrine from me that you heard, that I heard from him, then you don't know him. And that's how you can tell is do they bring the same teaching that John, Peter, James, Luke, all of them, Matthew, brought. If they don't do that, then they're not of God. And thereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the the litmus test really is in this word. And most people who claim to be Christian don't read this word much. They don't know much about it. They refer to a few scriptures in Galatians and Romans and in Matthew, maybe, or the Sermon on the Mount, and they, they have their little path, depending on their particular religion, that they follow through the Bible. And most of them don't know more than 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 verses uh, that they are acquainted with, let's say. Now, I'm not saying everybody's that way, but the vast majority are. They don't really know this book. And if you get them off of their little path, they're lost. That's why he tells us, live by every word of God. So every word that is in here has to be considered, meditated, weighed, thought about, and and understood in the light of the rest of the words. So Bible study is not something we do just to make ourselves feel better or to feel like we're doing our schoolwork or however you might want to term it. It's a lifelong process of learning more about how God thinks about any and every subject because there is no part of life that is left out of these words. So there is how we come to know the spirit of truth and error. And then he tells us to love one another, and those that do are the ones that are truly begotten of the Spirit of God. Verse 8, He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. See, that leaves no room for animosity, for hatred, for negativity. There's no room in God's way of living for that. That comes from Satan. It began when he began to rebel. It spread through a third of the angels, and it has spread to all human beings ever since. So when we think negatively about others, we have from a you know gray to black attitudes, depending on what it might be, toward others, then that is the degree to which Satan and this world around us affects us. 
And we have to get beyond that because God is going to have nothing but peace and safety and security, no tears, none of these negative feelings and emotions that we have on this earth in his kingdom forevermore. Now, we looked at some verses last week to show that human nature in and of itself is not good. It's not a mixture of good and evil. According to Jeremiah 17:9 and many other scriptures we looked at, it is evil to the core. I, I did say, you can't look at a little baby and say that baby is just plain evil. I mean, we got a newborn here in the congregation, and it doesn't look evil to me. It's kind of a sweet little child. So, I backed that, backed off that a little bit in terms of we become selfish, self-centered. I want what I want. I want my comforts. I want what I want to eat or to drink, or I want the temperature to be the way I want it, or however it may be. Now, it's not wrong to take care of ourselves and to be comfortable and to be fed. Don't get me wrong. But human beings tend to think of themselves ahead of anyone else. We think of whether we're warm or cold generally before we worry about whether somebody else is warm or cold or whether their tummy is full or not. So human nature tends to be that way. So we may not always be sinister or evil in the terms of Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini or Napoleon or whoever you might want to name, or Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. I'm not saying everybody has that. But we all have the darker side. We all have the selfishness, pride, vanity, ego, lifting ourselves above others that human beings do. And often we put others down and are negative about them. And we lose sight so very easily that they're the children of God. They're His creation. Every last one of us is. And what right do we have to criticize God's own children? Think about it as a parent. You don't like it when people criticize your children. In fact, you can get on a, a real snip pretty fast if people start running your kids down or correcting them in a way that you wouldn't want them corrected or speaking harshly to them or whatever. Some of us are very sensitive about those things. Those are my kids. Well, we're all God's kids. And we need to accept one another under those circumstances. What right do we have to criticize what God is doing through any one of us. He is working a work in every one of us. And you know what? He knows exactly where we are in the scheme of things. He is God, and He knows whether we need correction, whether we need guidance, whether we need more knowledge, whether we are weak here and strong there. He knows us inside and out, and He ponders our hearts continually to see what help we might need to become what we need to be. 
So he is even more interested in each one of us in some respects than we are of our own selves. He has great care and concern for the idols we make of ourselves and putting ourselves ahead of his word and him. So he's working with us. Now, if we begin to criticize and put down or speak negative about one another, we could upset the balance with that individual, discourage them, frustrate them, uh, or whatever, make them angry, and impede their growth by the way we interact with them. Now, that's something we need to deeply consider. When it says love one another, it doesn't mean to walk around that far above the ground saying, hi, 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 hi. Now, we can be friendly and we can be nice and all those things that constitute good human relations. But at the same time, we need to be thinking deeply about each other, praying for one another, that we all grow and overcome and become more godlike than we are. Are we going to see imperfections in each other? Of course we will, because we're all imperfect and none have come to the stature of Christ. So it's not hard to find errors in each other. In fact, it's just like falling off a log to see things that we feel are imperfections or mistakes or faults in one another. But we're here to support the weak, Paul says, to strengthen each other, not to pull each other down or talk about one another in a negative way. And when we do that, we're not showing the love of God, we're showing the work of the flesh and of Satan. So when he says God is love, that means God keeps his own rules, He's not above them. And it means he treats everyone equally. He's not a respecter of persons. And we are not to be either. Verse 9, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. When Adam and Eve decided to go the human way and the satanic way, they took the path of least resistance. You know, they learned right there the difference between good and evil. And immediately chose evil. Didn't take them long, did it? And we've been making that choice ever since. And we have to fight to choose the good. God told us. Choose this day, good or evil. Now, what did Israel do throughout their history? Most generally, they chose evil. And if they chose to do good, it didn't last long because of human nature circumstances. But God loved us so much. He sent His Son while we were yet sinners. He loved the sinners. We have to do the same. We have to be like Him. 
We cannot pick and choose who we will love. As humans, with human affection and emotion and human love, yes, we can do that. But God's love extends to every human who has ever walked this earth or will. doesn't love the sin, but he loves the individual. And in his plan, sooner or later, he's going to give everyone the opportunity to overcome evil and to do good and to live forever in his kingdom. Everybody is going to get one good, solid, valid chance. And yours and mine is now. We are under a great deal of pressure now. Now, We have ahead of us as the bride of Christ, if we qualify for the first resurrection, the greatest opportunity forevermore. Others will come along and be children under Christ and his bride. So they will not have as high a position. So you think things are tough? Well, hey, you're training to be kings and priests and the bride of Christ the King. We are called to be queen of the ruler of the world to come. So is it tough? Yes, it's tough. See, we didn't get into this like with that little baby, the new prince in England. We didn't go through, as a child, what that poor kid is going to have to go through. To learn all the protocol of what royalty does and is. And he will be, from the time he's a little child, in classes, out of classes, with tutors and people teaching him everything so that he will be hopefully a well-rounded individual and know everything to do and everything to say in every circumstance. And they put them through the paces as children. You and I didn't go through anything like that whatsoever. And then we learned the truth. And then it said we have to control every thought and every action. And that's enough to blow your mind, because we're not used to doing that. That's difficult. And we fall very short of it, but we still, he says, if you'll overcome, you'll be in my kingdom. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect by the time he gets back, or we might as well all throw up our hands now. But you have to be overcoming, you have to be changing, you have to be growing, you have to be pushing it. Herein is love, verse 10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We were sinners, and while we were yet sinners, he came, and he sacrificed himself to pay the penalty for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, doesn't that make sense? Isn't that logical? If God loved us enough, while we were idolaters, breaking every commandment there is, if not in the flesh, in the spirit, certainly. And he sent his son to this earth to go go through what he went through for us. He loved us that much. It's a no-brainer that we ought to truly love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. 
Well, you don't see God, like I said earlier. You don't know Him in that sense uh, through the five senses. You know Him through the Spirit. But His judgment of whether we love Him is based upon how much we love one another. That is inescapable. We've come across that over the last year or two. Everywhere we go in the Bible, we come across this concept. It's just just there. That how we react and act toward one another reflects our love for God. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We begin to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the patience, all those things that His Spirit imparts. And we begin to divest ourselves of all the negative issues of the work of the flesh. And that's how we know. Often by itself, a human being is not going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. It just won't happen. We can be kind because we like somebody, but we won't have that love that goes out to everyone on earth. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So the whole world, everybody, his sacrifice is there for any who will accept it. He does not play favorites or respecter or be a respecter of persons. Whosoever God dwells. Now, if you take that verse alone, like I said, and say that's all I got to do is confess that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll be in the kingdom of God. No, you've got to take it in context. You can't just jerk it out of there. Let's see that. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. So if we swallow our pride and our ego and esteem others better than ourselves, as Paul says and crucify the flesh, crucify our selfishness, then we know that we have the love of God in us. God is not selfish. It just isn't there. We are by nature. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, God is on his throne, And he follows his own rules perfectly. Never impinges on them at all. And we, in this world, this evil world around us, are to be like him in spite of all the outside interference and our own humanness. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Now, let's understand the type of fear, because it does say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is, to respect, to stand in awe of both God and His Word, His way. Now you're beginning to get some wisdom. Now you're beginning to get smart, if you come to have that kind of depth and respect for God and His ways. But 
Love is something that has no room for fear if it's perfect love. Let's read that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. If we live fearfully, if we are insecure inside, if we have what they call low self-esteem, now the world is telling us that we ought to esteem ourselves very highly, and we raise our kids and say, oh, you're the greatest, you're wonderful, you do nothing but good, you're, you're just, oh, what a child. Now there is a balance in teaching our children that they have value on this earth as children of God and will be valuable in His kingdom someday, and that if they have good conduct, that will be rewarded. But do we have to always tell the child, you are so good, you are so smart, and build his vanity and ego, why not just tell him, that is good, you did a good job on that. Don't tell them they're good, because ultimately they aren't. They're selfish, like all human beings. And you can build that selfishness and vanity and ego if you're not very careful. But you can compliment them on the good things they do. Even as the father didn't say, I'm proud of you, son. He said, I'm well pleased with what you've done. There is a difference. You can still make that child feel like moving forward and being productive without causing him to be full of vanity and ego and pride. There is a difference. But why, if we're trying to do right, do we fear? We fear because we're not keeping His commandments perfectly. We fear because we are not obeying, and we know that you have to obey and overcome in order to be part of the kingdom of God. It is a gift, yes. But that gift, that reward, will not come unless we do the good works that the Bible requires. It is a gift that is given freely, but it is a gift that is given freely to those who will serve and obey God and love their fellow man, not to those who will not. He is the gift giver. And he can give that gift wherever he so wishes. There are no strings attached. He gives it of his free will. And he desires above all things to give us of his kingdom and immortality. He really wants that. So he is quite willing to give the gift of eternal life. He wants to give us that gift. But we have to show him that we will live according to his ways, peacefully and happily within his kingdom. Otherwise, that gift will be withheld from us. And there will be a certain amount of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what makes us feel insecure as Christians? We know we're not living up to perfectly the what we should. If we had perfect love, perfect obedience, then we would not have guilty consciences, we would not feel insecure. So, that fear 
is not yet made perfect in love. And what is love? We'll see a definition of that here in just a few moments. Because you have to be able to quantify love to some degree. It isn't just a gooey, sticky, sweet feeling. There's more to it than that. We love, and the word him is not in the original Greek, we love because he first loved us. Now, I think the hymn is important there because he is emphasizing through this whole passage that we have to love not just God, but our fellow man. Otherwise, we do not have the love of God because his attitude is that he loves all mankind. All his children he loves. And if we're to be like him, we've got to love them all too. There's no getting around it. Now you're going to like some better than you do others. No doubt about that. But you've got to love them all and treat them all with love, kindness, respect, and hope that they live up to it. So we love because he first loved us. If a man say, now can you put it any plainer and more bluntly than this? If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Pure and simple. No equivocation. No bad Greek. No poor translation here. No writing some things hard to be understood, as Paul sometimes did. If you hate your brother, any of your brothers. You are a liar, and the truth is not in you. For he that loves not his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Oh, God lays it out for us just as plainly as you can possibly do it through John. Now, John was the one who had more affection and more love for all the others than any of the others, and that was one of the reasons, I think, for sure, that Christ personally was closer to him than he was any of the others. Well, John is the right one to write about this. But if you expect John just to be all goo, uh, you got another thing coming. He says there are some guidelines, some parameters, that the love of God has to be within. And if you are outside those lines and claim to love God... You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. That's a commandment. You go back to John 15, 16, 17, and review what Christ said to his disciples there on, after the Passover on that last night. This is included. I won't go back there, uh, but we go through it every Passover. And you can certainly do it yourself, and it does say what he says here. And of course, he's the one that wrote that account, so for him to say almost the same words uh, makes sense. Now, let's get to chapter 5. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. Again, the word is genau in the Greek, and it does not mean born, it means begotten. And every place it says born in First John... Second and third John, 
the Greek word is genial, G-E-N-N-A-O, and means begotten, not born. Paul, didn't John tell us back in John 3, I think it was, right in there, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Speaking with Nicodemus there. Oh, we are not born of the Spirit, are we? No, because we're still flesh. Very much flesh. We're still human. So we're born of a mother and a father, but we're not born of God yet. Begotten, yes. We have been conceived in the Spirit, and if we grow to spiritual maturity, we will be born into the Spirit world when Christ returns. Meantime, it's just begotten. And we are going to, we have only two, two ways to go, brethren. We're going to become a spiritual abortion, dead on arrival, or we are going to grow to spiritual maturity and be born into the kingdom of God. That's why God did the human birth process in the way that he did. You can't have a baby by yourself. It takes two. It takes a marriage. It takes the system and the process that God set up for children to be born. And we are in jeopardy from the time we are conceived until we are born and come out screaming and breathing that we might not make it. But he made the process so that most do. Have you noticed that? Most pregnancies turn into babies because of degeneracy, because of circumstances, or because of murder, as it is today. Uh, some don't make it. But through the natural process, most will. God is giving us a message there. There in Romans 11, he tells us, all Israel shall be saved. So most of the people who are ultimately begotten of God, whether now or in the millennium of the great white throne judgment, are going to make it into his kingdom. He is powerful enough. He is loving enough. He will make conditions such that it will happen. He won't fail. And he has no intention of failing with you and me. He really doesn't. He wants us to be there. So whoever, I might say, truly believes that Emmanuel is is the Christ, is begotten of God. There are conditions to being begotten. The Spirit of God has to interact with our minds. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father drawing. And you have to learn the truth. He said up here to try every spirit, remember? Compare the spirit of what is being taught with the Bible. Compare the attitude with the fruit of the Spirit, not the work of the flesh. And we spent quite a little time showing scriptures last time that Christ actually comes and dwells in us. His mind in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We went through quite a few of those. To show that it's not just the belief that he is Christ, but that he comes and lives his life through us. And we have to submit to his way in order for us to begin to look like him in our actions and thoughts, spirit and attitude. 
verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Remember I said there are guidelines and parameters that we have to be within to have the love of God. And that's what he says here. 1 John 5, 3 ought to be in every memory bank of every converted Christian there is. For this is, here is a defining verse. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Now that is a verse we have had to use back when the, the, the church was truly growing rapidly on almost everyone we met, because most were coming out of a Protestant background, some Catholic or whatever, but mostly Protestant to one degree or another. And they've been taught the commandments are done away with. You don't have to keep them. They're not important. All you have to do is have love. Yet John is telling us here that the love of God includes the commandments. Without keeping those commandments, you don't have the love of God. You might have affection for human beings. You might like your kids or your husband or your wife or your mother or whoever and have human affection, filios. But unless you keep the commandments, you cannot, by definition, have the love of God. So if you think the commandments are done away with and not needed, you don't have a clue what true Christianity is. Because you can't have the love of God without keeping commandments. And they aren't grievous. Is it really bad not to murder? I guess it depends on the degree. Most of us would not want to stab or shoot somebody and kill them physically. We just do it with words in their back. And it's the same thing. And Christ addressed that back in the Sermon on the Mount. If we have that kind of anger and hatred or negativity toward a brother, we're breaking the command of not doing any murder or killing on a spiritual level. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. In the Old Testament, you could think murder all you wanted, I guess, as long as you didn't kill somebody. But he said, hey, I didn't come to do away with the law. I made it more binding. Now you can't even think hatred or you're in danger of the judgment because you're committing murder in your heart. Stabbing somebody in the back, spiritually, is the same as shooting them in the front, physically. But is that grievous? Is that so bad that we should treat each other with respect and love and kindness and not stab them in the back? Well, that's a good thing. You don't like it when it happens to you. But we seem to fall into it so easily with others. And that means we're idolizing ourselves and putting ourselves above man and above God. When we speak evil of one another, 
or decry each other's character, gossip. We are committing idolatry. The first commandment. We are putting our opinion and our mouth above that person who is a child of God and above God who says we are not to think evil. That is idolatry. Maybe we need to think about that sometimes when we let our tongue start wagging. It's idolatry. Is it grievous to put God ahead of everything else? Shouldn't be. But as humans, we find it grievous, don't we? Why is it that we sometimes equivocate? And we'll think what we want to think and put God out of the picture. We'll say what we want to say and temporarily shut God out of the picture. That is idolatry. It's putting our opinion and what we want, if it's illegal, above him and what he wants. You don't have to have some little carved figure to have an idol. The biggest idol that all of us have is self. But be sure you remember 1 John 5, 3. Because anytime somebody says the commandments are done away, this is a very, very plain statement. You can't have the love of God without keeping His commandments. And the degree of love you have is the perfection of how well you keep these commandments. Perfect love, perfect obedience, casts out fear. We don't have a bad conscience. We don't worry. We don't know. We don't worry about, well, is God going to drop the other shoe on me? Because we know we're doing what we ought to do. And therefore, we fear less. None of us have perfected it, so we all live in a certain amount of fear. And I hope that it's a healthy fear of God in the sense that we begin to get wisdom and keep His laws as opposed to the fear that comes from disobedience. Now, you can, as a child, love your parent and have a certain fear of them because they're in charge and they can take away privileges. They can pound your behind if child protective services aren't around. You have a certain built-in awe, respect, and love for parent. But when you disobey, you feel guilty. You know you're doing something your parent would not want, and you know that if you're caught, you're liable to have something come down on you. That's the kind of fear that's unhealthy. The awe and the respect is healthy. And of course, when we hit 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, we begin to lose the awe and respect for parent and decide to do what we want to do. And I'm going to grow up and I'm a person myself and I'm just as good as you is and my mind is as good as yours is. And on and on and on, and we all know the story. 
And then someday we might grow up and have maturity and wisdom and realize we didn't know as much as we thought we did. That our parents were right after all. But you see, especially I guess at that age, I don't know, what's the worst age? Three and four and thirteen and fourteen? I don't know. Because those are the times when we try to force our will into the circumstance. When we're real small, we we finally get big enough that our selfishness can come out. And we try. And they call them the terrible twos and the, you know, whatever. And then we maybe get pushed back a little, and then we might be learning that, you know, a certain kind of conduct just doesn't go around here. And then suddenly we spurt up about 6, 8, 10, 12 inches or 2 feet, and then here it comes all over again. We get three or four hormones rubbing against each other and get a little taller, and now we're going to make another try at it. I will be me. And then you're big enough that it becomes a battle royal instead of respecting and honoring the parents as God says to do and that your life will be long upon the earth. But if you don't honor and respect your parents, your life could be shortened because your parents are giving you good advice and if you don't take it, you may do things that shorten it. Some parents have even threatened to shorten it. <laughs> Not seriously, I don't think, for the most part. Once in a while, somebody does. Let's have the right kind of awe of God. His commandments really aren't grievous. You know, the one that grieves people the most, really, is the Sabbath. They'll agree we ought to have the rest of them, but boy, that's Sabbath. Let's not keep that. I talked to a Protestant preacher last week. We talked about our backgrounds a little bit. I says, but we do keep Saturday Sabbath. He says, well, yeah, that's the correct Sabbath. But he has all his meetings on Sunday. He knows. It's not a revelation. He knows. I've talked to many of them over the years. But no, Saturday's the Sabbath. It's easy to prove from the Bible and from history that Saturday's the Sabbath. It's still on your calendar as the seventh day of the week. They haven't even bothered to change that. Easy enough to prove, but nobody wants to do it. And almost invariably, if you... Pin a preacher down on it, he'd say, well, nobody had come. And then I couldn't do any good. So we meet on the wrong day, the people come, and I can do some good. He doesn't have the love of God. He is an idolater. See how? See the connection? God said, keep the seventh day. It's a picture of my plan and of the millennial rest. And if you lose that, you lose sight of my plan. It's the day I rested. It's the day you ought to rest. And draw near to him. 
But you decide that the Catholics, or the Methodists, or the Baptists, or whatever your flavor of the day is, know better than God. And that even though God appointed it as a Sabbath, it's okay to worship Him any day. Now what He says, it's one of the Ten Commandments, and if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, you don't have the love of God. That one's included in it. It's not grievous. What does it hurt to keep Saturday instead of Sunday? Your background and the teaching you had as a Protestant or a Catholic. That's all. Maybe your job. So what? There's jobs. So what? God takes care of the birds of the air. He says He can take care of us. And He says if we'll obey Him, He will. I've seen a lot of so-called Christians that would say, well, yeah, but I'd lose my job. I'll obey God unless it costs me my job. God wouldn't want me to starve to death. No, and He won't let you starve to death if you'll obey Him. But if you disobey Him, you're on your own. And you better feed yourself because He's not going to take care of you. Anyway, we can stay on 1 John 5, 3 from now on. Let's move on here. For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world. He is not like the world around him. And Paul tells us very clearly we can't be friends of God and friends of the world. You can't straddle the fence. You can't be on both sides. It doesn't mean we don't love the people out there, but we don't make friends of them and mix with them continually because evil affects good more than good affects evil. That's just the way it works. Because by nature, we are anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-God's way. We are selfish and full of pride, vanity, and ego to the core. And that core will come out if you are around people who are living by their core. So you have to stay away from it and overcome the way of the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. In other words, we believe God, we trust Him, we keep His commandments whether the world does or not, and then the, God, the faith of God is made manifest in our lives. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus, or Emmanuel, is the Son of God? If you don't truly believe that, you're not going to overcome the world. If you believe he's the Son of God, he walked the earth and never sinned, never broke the commandments, and you are committed, convicted, to live the same way, to walk as he walked, to bring every thought into the captivity of God, then you're going to overcome the world. This is he that came by water and blood, even Emmanuel. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Water is symbolized in the Bible as true doctrine. 
also of baptism and water. Because Christ, it's symbolic, the water of the Word washes away the wrong kind of doctrine and teaching. That's why any baptism done out in the world is highly suspect. Because in 99.999-whatever percent of the cases, people don't understand that the commandments are to be kept. They don't understand God's way. Well, in probably the majority of cases, they don't even put people under the water. They sprinkle them or some other thing they do. But water represents true doctrine. And God says to repent and be baptized. Repent means change. If you don't change, that's Acts 2.38. If you don't know what to change and don't change, then you're not showing repentance. So, you have to understand at least a certain amount of true doctrine before you know what to change and how to repent. Yeah, repentance can be a very deep, understanding of our human nature that we come to have and how we have come short of the glory of God and feel really badly about our state as a human being. But to begin to change that state as a human, you have to understand true doctrine. So, the water represents doctrine as well as washing away the sin symbolically when we're baptized. Just like Water is going to come out from under the throne of God when it is set up here at the beginning of the millennium with the Father and the Son to cleanse the nations. Now, not only will it cleanse the pollution of the earth on a, in a physical level, and I do believe the continents will all be back together at that time like they originally were. They'll be moved. <clears throat> and then the waters coming out from the center of the earth, which is here, uh, will cleanse the whole earth of the pollution that is there. <clears throat> but they also represent true doctrine and true belief that come out from the Father and the Son at the throne. See, the time of the new heavens and new earth is a time when the earth still needs to be cleansed. There'll still be flesh living here. And it won't be pure with our former belief that the earth would all be burned up and then all be created new, why would you need the water to come up out to heal the nations if they're already healed? If everybody's spirit and there's no human around that's disobeying, you don't need it healed. But it's set up at the beginning of the millennium to heal the nations and to heal the peoples, physically and spiritually. So there's a great deal of witness in the water and, of course, in the blood. Because water, often by itself, cannot wash away sin. The penalty of sin is death, not a good bath or shower. It's death, shedding of the blood. So we have to have good and true doctrine and be willing to be cleansed and then we have to have the blood of Christ to be forgiven. So the water and the blood work in concept in uh, what's the word I work together. 
to cleanse and purify and clean us. But by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So, the water and the blood, to cleanse our minds and to forgive our sins, is witnessed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And He gives His Spirit, remember, to them that obey. Obey what? The law. Without commandment keeping, God does not give His Spirit. Acts 5.29 and 32 will emphasize that. So somebody who says, I have the Spirit of God, and they don't keep the commandments of God, don't know what they're talking about. They're living under a false pretense. Now let's skip verse 7, because it isn't in the original Greek. It was added by a Catholic monk in order to promulgate the doctrine of the Trinity. So it is not in the original text at all. So going to verse 8, there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And the water, we've already explained, and the blood we've explained, working together to bring us justification, to ultimately bring us salvation. Verse 7 tries to say that the Holy Spirit is a being like the Father and the Son are. That's why it is spurious and does not fit or agree with the rest of the Bible. Let's not get into that because we could be here with scriptures the rest of the day proving the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is not an individual. It is the power, the essence, the mind, the projection of God in the universe that can project into our minds if we have true doctrine and have our sins washed away in His blood. And these three agree in one. They all agree in Christ. If we receive, verse 9, the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. We can get the approbation, the approval of men. Uh, that doesn't do us any good in the long run. They can't give us eternal life, can't give us salvation. God can. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. Now, how do we have that witness in ourselves? Others can see our conduct, our life, how we live, how we think, how we react. And that's a witness of God living His life in us. That witness is in us. I met a guy at the hospital recently, and he had an aura, not an aura, not a halo, don't get me wrong, but an attitude, a spirit of mind that impressed me more than anyone else on the staff. Why? What was different about him than the others? He wasn't any better looking, necessarily. 
He wasn't any smarter, necessarily, that I know. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. But he had an attitude, an approach about him that just was different. A few days later, George's daughters were talking about no unclean food on the menu. And I think he said something about, well, you keep, or under the Sabbath, maybe. Oh, and you keep the feast, too? Yeah. He's a church member. Nobody knew that. But his life, his attitude, his approach, the spirit that came out was a witness that he's of God. Something I recognize without knowing. <coughs> Don't anybody tell him I said this. Don't know whether he'll ever hear it or not. But that's okay. I'm not, I'm not uh, setting him on a pedestal. I'm just saying that his attitude and approach and the spirit with which he goes about his life is a witness in himself that the Spirit of God is there. The others were nice. The others were helpful. But there was just something extra there that I recognized unbeknownst. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. Verse 19, he that believes on the Son of God has... Oh, that's what we were talking about. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, the record is 33 and a half years of perfect living on the earth and of being resurrected and of continuing to live in the Spirit as Spirit as we can someday be. Verse 11, And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So, God is on record as begetting us to someday inherit eternal life. Immortality, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4.17, if you want to check it out. Verse 12, He that has the Son has life. His life, being lived through us, creates a life, a begettal, that will someday be born into the kingdom of God. So we don't possess life eternal yet. We're still human and subject to death. But we have Him dwelling in us projecting forward to eternal life. These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God. These were church members he's writing to who understood that the commandments had to be kept. And if they didn't understand it, he told them very plainly, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he is living his life through us, therefore we have eternal life within us. And it will be made permanent at the resurrection when we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and become spirit. It is there, but we could still become an abortion or a miscarriage. Paul even said he was not once saved, always saved. He said that even he could become a shipwreck having preached the Word of God all the time that he did. We are not saved until Christ returns and we are changed into spirit. We are saved from death and the penalty of sin at that time. Now, we have been given probation in the meantime. 
His blood covers our sins day by day as a living sacrifice. And if we continue in His way and overcome the world, He will grant us the gift of eternal life. It's grace and works, not one or the other. I'll show you my faith by my works, Paul said. So even though we're begotten of the Spirit, when a child is conceived of the human father, that child isn't born yet, and it could become a miscarriage, but Daddy still looks at that bump growing and says, That's my baby. And it is. The father is part of that child. It's begotten of him. But he can't really say it's his kid till he's holding it and it's breathing. Then it's really his kid in the flesh, not just tight tummy muscles. It changes, just as we will change. So it can be in us, but we're not changed yet. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And he says that back in John 15 through 17 again. We have to be sure that we understand the will of God. His will is expressed throughout this book. And the more we understand this book, the more we'll understand the will of God. And then what we ask in prayer we can be in accord with His will, and then is when we get answers. He is not going to act against His will. Now, some things we might desire are things that He would not approve of because they're against His law, His will, and His way of life. They're illegal. So if you ask for something illegal, God's going to say, I don't hear sinners. I don't. He said so. If we are overcoming human nature in the world around us, we're getting in line with His will, and then we're going to be more apt to get answers from Him. He blew the church apart and says He did. Go through Lamentations 2 and 3, the whole book. I did this, he says, over and over and over again. I scattered you because you were not obeying me and worshiping me the way I want to be worshipped. You were not doing it with all your heart. And he says in Jeremiah that when we turn to him with our whole heart, he will turn to us and bless us. You see... He's putting the church through what it's going through to cause us to repent, to change, to change our attitudes, to serve and obey Him with our whole heart, with all our might. Heart, mind, body, and soul is all He wants from us. And we are still scattered and divided and scattering and dividing because we have not done what he wants us to do yet. What does he tell Laodicea? Us. Repent. And then you will have unity and peace and happiness. We cannot today in the church have unity, 
peace, and everybody getting along. It is absolutely impossible. God has given us the spirit of confusion and scattering. And until we recognize that and do something about it, we cannot have peace no matter how hard we try. Now, he tells us in Haggai 2.9 that when he starts rebuilding the latter temple, I will bring peace in this place. He is going to stir those who have stirred themselves to serve and obey him to come and build his temple. And they will be moved by the Spirit of God to the point that they will learn peace, even ahead of the millennium. That is the only way unity will come in the church. And until that happens... It will continue to divide and cannot be reconciled. People have different doctrines, they have different attitudes, have different approaches, have different focus. Those cannot be reconciled until they understand what God wants and how he wants it and are willing to comply with it with the utmost conviction. Then it will happen, but not until. We can be part of that if we will submit to God And do what he has asked us to do. Repent from the heart. And change our way of thinking and acting. Then we're getting within the will of God. And he will begin to answer our prayers for healing. And our prayers for each other. And prayers for overcoming. And all those things that we pray about. Meantime, he shows us a little intervention here. And a little intervention there. But he doesn't just wholesale open the windows of heaven and bless us the way Joel 2 says, and the way that Isaiah says, and the way that all the prophecies say. But it's coming. Only 10% of the church will respond, brethren, and be stirred to come and build the temple of God. Very clear under the two witnesses, only a tithe will respond to them. How sad, but how true. Only those who repent from the heart now will be stirred to be gathered. The rest will go into the tribulation, and not only the heat that we have felt so far in our lives, but greater heat and pressure is going to be added. Zechariah, I think it's 12, says that about a third will repent during that time. Heat and pressure is what it takes. That's what God has put on the church so far. And about 10% are going to respond, and the rest are going to have to have even more heat and pressure. How about you and me? Respond now would be so much better. Let's finish this up right quickly. Got to be according to his will, and then he will hear us. And if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. He will answer. The reason he's not answering yet is because we have not responded properly. Not what he is after. When we do, those answers are going to begin to come fast and furious. We can't give up. We can't back off. Move forward. 
If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not to death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not to death. God says it avails something when we pray for our brother who has sinned a sin that is not unto death. What is that? That's a sin that we are willing to repent of, to change, because it can be covered under the blood of Christ. Then he says there is a sin to death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. In other words, if we willingly turn from God and his way, adamantly, rebelliously, say, I will not obey God. I will not repent. I will not change. If we let ourselves get into that attitude, Christ's blood will not cover us because we are not obedient. We are not clay that can be worked in the potter's hands, but we're rigid and stiff and resistant and rebellious. That will not be forgiven unless repented of. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sins not. Now, everybody sins and comes short of the glory of God. He obviously means they don't live a life of sin. It isn't a habit. It isn't what they do. Because that begins to get on the edge of a sin that is unto death. Not being willing to do God's way even though you understand it. Now, people that don't understand it don't really know what they're doing, and they're not going to be judged for it. But somebody who truly does understand and has received the Spirit of God and then turns in rebellion against God, how can that be forgiven unless repented of? And Esau was on the edge of that. Hebrews 12 shows you. He cried bitterly with tears and he just would not change his attitude toward Jacob. He hated Jacob with a passion. And he was not going to give it up, even though he wanted to want to. He knew he'd be better off if he did. But as long as you want to want to overcome something, you never will. So you have to pray to God with all your heart. He will give you the desire to change it. And then when you want to want to, you will. But we don't want to want to. We wish we wanted to. We knew we'd be better off, but we like this or this or that or this way of thinking so much, we won't turn loose of it, even though we know better. That's the way Esau was. And he was on the edge. Don't say he went over it. Maybe he wasn't converted. But he was on the edge of the unpardonable sin by being unwilling, intransigent, rebellious against the attitude of God. And the attitude of his children throughout the ages has not changed. The sons of Esau, the Edomites, read the book of Obadiah, today are going to fight and prevail over Jacob. The Edomite Jews, in the positions of power, the fat places, as God said, are now in the process of destroying this nation of Jacob of Israel. So that hatred has not diminished. Those central bankers and others of the same mind and attitude, whether they're in the military or politics, still hate us 
And they may not even know why, but they do. Esau's attitude is still there. It was in the genes. Hasn't changed. That is unpardonable. Unless, under pressure, maybe in the great white throne judgment they repent, and they probably will. I don't hate them. I just know they don't know God. They don't understand. They have a wrong cause. They're following the wrong flag, banner, and cross. And don't even know it. And they don't understand why they hate us, but they do. God have mercy on them in his time. Meantime, they're going to destroy us. Going to happen. God has said so. There's, there's a certain attitude that doesn't do any good to pray for, because unless that person is willing to turn it loose, it can't be forgiven. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death, can be repented of. We know that whosoever is begotten of God sins not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. So he's careful. He keeps himself from the world, from Satan, from the wrong way of thinking. And then the devil can't touch him. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. Not part of the world, the whole world. Satan is the, res- the r- ruler of this world. Prince of the power of the air. He rules this world with an iron hand. And influences its leaders and its citizens. The whole world is following Satan's way. And only those few who really understand this book, are the exceptions. And of all the people that have lived from Adam until today, only 144,000 will be in the first resurrection. That is all. These are the first fruits. No more, no less. The rest will have to be saved in the millennium or the great white throne judgment when they're brought back to life with Satan bound and human society changed. Then they'll be given their chance. Don't write them off, but in the meantime, the world is lying in wickedness and we have to fight against it so that we can be part of that 144,000. We know that the Son of God is coming and and has given us an understanding that we may know Him. You don't know Him unless you keep His commandments. That is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his son, Emmanuel. This is the true God and eternal life. You've got to have the right God in order to have eternal life. The Pope just told the world that you don't have to believe in God to go to heaven. Said it right out right. We accept all. Come to Mama. And you don't even have to believe in God. Is that the spirit of Antichrist, or what? Little children, keep yourselves from idols, the biggest being ourselves. Amen.